Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 25, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with that Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., Coming up in a few moments, we'll be joined by award-winning actor, director, producer, and star of An Evening with Groucho, Frank Ferrante. But first, we wanted to take a moment to say thank you to you, our loyal listeners and supporters, for helping us reach our 25th show and over 1,000 downloads. This has been a challenging year, and back in September 2020, Greg and I decided we wanted to use our quarantine downtime to, like we say in our intro, hone our craft as actors by learning as much as we could about theater and showbiz in general, We also felt a burden to do our part to keep the local theater community engaged and offer a place to gather virtually when the footlights went out. And so Heilman and Haver was born, and in just eight months, thanks to you, we're going strong and enjoying weekly conversations with guests we never would have imagined at this point last year. We've made many new friends locally and in Hollywood, on Broadway, and jolly old England. And we also owe a big thank you to all of our talented and generous guests for the hours of learning they've offered us. We have enjoyed every minute, and to those who we've only met virtually, we look forward to thanking you in person very, very soon. Yes, we do. And there's much, much more to come, so stay tuned and please share the show with a friend or two. In just the next five weeks, we'll be joined by a Broadway makeup and prosthetics artist, longtime actor Perry King, whose directorial debut, The Divide, debuted at the Cannes Film Festival, and biographers of Cary Grant, Douglas Fairbanks, and Groucho Marx. And speaking of Groucho, a special episode deserves a special guest. So we're extremely pleased to welcome to the show a man who has played Groucho Marx on stage to great acclaim for over 35 years, Frank Ferrante. Mr. Ferrante is an actor, director, and producer, and recipient of New York's Theatre World Award for Outstanding Debut, a New York Outer Critics Circle nomination, London's Laurence Olivier Award nomination for Comedy Performance of the Year, Washington, D.C.'s Helen Hayes nomination, and two Connecticut Critics Circle Awards. His international and PBS performances in the title role in Groucho, A Life in Review, received not only acclaim from critics and audiences, but from the Marx family. Frank is one of the busiest touring performers in theater today, with over 3,000 performances as Groucho internationally in 500 cities. Ferrante was discovered by Groucho's son, playwright Arthur Marx, when he was 22 and was subsequently cast to portray Groucho for the heralded 1986-87 production of Arthur's off-Broadway production, Groucho, A Life in Review. And in 1996, Frank starred off-Broadway in the Groucho role in the Marx musical The Coconuts, written by George S. Kaufman, who Ferrante also portrayed in his one-man show By George, which he also wrote. In three and a half decades on stage, Frank has performed before millions of audience members, including some very talented friends. Sean Penn, Hal Holbrook of Mark Twain Tonight, Robin Williams, Carol Channing, and Kay Ballard, each one utterly impressed by his talent. Offstage, he has appeared on Children's Hospital and provided voice work on SpongeBob SquarePants and The Garfield Show. And along with his acting work, Frank is also the owner of Groucho Marx Productions Incorporated, which represents the name and likeness of the iconic performer. The film of his stage show, An Evening with Groucho, premiered in March 2021 in Austin, Texas, and on October 19th of this year, Frank will receive a star in Palm Springs, California on the Walk of Stars on Palm Canyon Drive. Frank joins us from his home in Los Angeles. Welcome, Frank. Frank, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Matt. It's a a delight to be here. I appreciate the invite. Wow. So that is quite a resume, Frank, and uh, literally only scratches the surface of your experience both on and off stage. So let's go back and start at the beginning. 
When did you first know you wanted to be an entertainer? And how did you first fall under the spell, like so many of us as kids, of Groucho Marx? Well, I think I first was drawn to entertainment as a, as a child, watching too much television from the time I was born. Watch, you know, when I was a kid in the you know, mid-60s, the Lucy show was on, and uh, Jerry Mahoney and Knucklehead Smith, who were two ventriloquist dummies that were operated by the great Paul Winchell. It was a children's show. The Mothers-in-Law was all these old sitcoms I was already attracted to. They reminded me, they felt like relatives, all these people in my, in my living room in our little home in, in San Gabriel. So it was a great escape. And I was learning about rhythms early on and, and laughing along with the laugh tracks. And then when I was about nine or 10, I, I, a neighborhood friend knocked on my door and said, Frank, you have to put on the TV. And lo and behold, it was the Marx Brothers in a day at the races. And uh, at the time I was being taught by nuns and uh, living in fear. And there was something really freeing about watching Groucho and Harpo and Chico uh, raise hell and just break the rules and, and maybe more importantly, make their own rules. And that was a, a thrill for a shy, self-conscious kid who, uh, you know, who wanted to break out, uh, who, was, who felt intimidated like a lot of, a lot of children. So that was, that was the beginning. And so what happened, Matt and, and Greg, was that I was kind of catapulted myself into the local library and started researching all kinds of comedy and starting with vintage comedy, um, the Marx Brothers, Jack Benny, Bob Hope and Crossing, Martin and Lewis, Jackie Gleason, Jerry Lewis, all, you know, you name it, Abbott and Costello. I was, it, it became a real study for me. So I'd watch what I could. I'd read everything I could at the local library and found myself absorbing the rhythms, imitating all of these comics from Paul Lynn to Mae West and then started realizing that there were comedians of the day that were also were equally potent, like um, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and um, Peter Sellers. Those were the comedians of my, of my youth. So that's, that's how it started. It really started because uh, Groucho, who was so irreverent and so wrong, uh, exhilarated me. And I wanted to be you know, a bad boy that got away with murder like he did. He could say whatever he wanted to say <laughs> and he could do whatever he wanted to do. And that is, that's an exhilaration. That is a rush. And I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be like my, those heroes of mine. And I was really fortunate in that that's what happened <laughs> with time. Uh, <laughs> literally portraying his life over 35, you know, during the last 35 years of my career, if you can call it that. And, um, and then also creating my own character in the Cirque industry, the Caesar, which is this crazy Latin lover, breaks the rules, interacts with the audience kind of character. So it was inspired by Groucho. And I like playing these larger than life characters and that's because of his influence. But I owe Groucho Marx so much because he got me into the arts. He, I became a director because of him. I'm able to edit material because of him. I am able to, I perform because of him. Uh, I understand design, theater design because of him because he attracted me. His magic, his genius sucked me in and forever indebted. There, there's something about him because I remember growing up. I, I grew up in the um, in the early '70s, and somehow we ended up watching, I guess, reruns of "You Bet Your Life," the game show. And I was fascinated. I, you know, I, I watched this thing every every time I was on. My the most disappointing thing was when I learned I was watching reruns as a kid. But I thought it was brand new, <laughs> and you know, I was waiting for the duck to come down and and all of that. But it was just 
his, his personality, I think is just so engaging and, and magnetic. It just can't help but draw you in. Yeah. You say something to me, it's extremely interesting. I always, it always felt like it was happening right then and there, even though it was in black and white, I thought he was doing the show live. And I thought all those performers were in my living room. When you're a kid, it is happening right there in the moment. And when I was, I, I grew up in the seventies as well. And, and the early seventies, Groucho had this major Renaissance. He was an octogenarian, uh, but you could see Groucho at any given time as a young man in the movies on television. You could see him in reruns on television at 11 o'clock at night and you bet your life in his middle age years. And then you could see him on current talk shows like, like Dick Cavett or Johnny, or Johnny Carson or, or whatever uh, as an old man. So you have to, you, we all experienced the three ages of Groucho. And I don't know if there was anyone else, any other performer we could say that about. So he really became a hero to a lot of us young kids because of his brazenness, his, his brashness, his that brazen quality he had. And then he was just irreverent and didn't care and didn't, he bucked authority. And that's a thrill. Uh, and he did it at every age, you know, in all, in every incarnation from his 40s until his 80s that we were able to witness via the screen. Um, but yeah, he was, you're right about his magnetism. There was something special about him, Greg, and that um, he had, he had charm. He had a, a charisma. He had a, a disdain. He had a, a, a warmth and a coolness uh, that he could play alternately at times. Sometimes he could charm you and sometimes he could, I mean, he could, he, he used to say, I can't insult anyone anymore because everyone wants to be insulted by me. Which was his, which which was his stock, and you know, which was his, you know, a trademark um, approach that he took. Insult. I think people are attracted to truth, and he was certainly a yes. truth teller. Even you know, seeing him on uh, shows like Firing Line, uh -huh. and so talking about very serious subjects, but with such humor and just a, a depth of wisdom that could only come from a life like he lived. Uh, absolutely, and a life that is. Um, and he was very engaged. So, you know, he had multiple subscriptions to newspapers and magazines. He knew what was going on in the world. He cared. He had, a, yes. he had a lack of formal education. He never got past the sixth grade and spent his life making up for it. As Dick Cavett used to say about him, he was more educated than any college graduate he'd ever come across. Groucho was self-taught. Self uh, he kept a dictionary. I have his encyclopedia in his dictionary in my home right now. But he kept a dictionary in his car, in his glove compartment, because he was always trying to improve his vocabulary and stay on top of it. And many of his friends were writers, not so much comedians. His closest friends were writers. Uh, he had a long, a long correspondence um, with T.S. Eliot, the great poet, and, and loved writers and poets and and playwrights. George Bernard Shaw, one of I, them. Right? I believe so, and George Kaufman for sure. Uh, but yeah, he he would have known Shaw. Harper was friends of Shaw. But uh, yeah, it's, he's a remark. It's, you know, he had a huge collection of books and it's interesting. I was very close to his kids, Arthur and Miriam, both who lived to be, you know, Miriam lived to be 90, Arthur lived to be 89 and they were always reading and they got that from their father. What a gift that was. And as senior citizens, they, you know, they were using computers. They want, they, they were engaged. Their father was a voracious letter writer and, um, and a writer loved to write. So he's, an, I think, more than a notch above most humorist or so-called comedians of his time in that he was this great intellect and, and really did care about a variety of things from sports to the economy to the global political situation, horticulture, 
baseball you know, he loved. I mean, there was a lot to him. A renaissance man. He, he really was. He really totally self-made. He came from poverty, self-taught. I mean, it's when we think about how spoiled most of us are. You know, we have credit cards and sometimes we have family that support us. And we all have, most of us have mats, some kind of net, I should say. I'm talking like the circuit now, safety net. Uh, you know, he didn't, you know, it's do or die. And, uh, and you know, it was sink or swim with those guys. And, and I really admire that. And I, I admire the fact that he was a great survivor. I try to learn, take lessons with me from his life since I've, it's been an important part of my life, interpreting him and sharing him with audiences in various stage productions and musicals and in online. So it's important for me to share that with him, you know, to share the, the, the various facets of him with an audience too. So while we look at your career, I mean, it's there, sure there's the the Groucho portrayals that you're probably best known for. But, you know, in addition to that, you've directed shows like Bright Beach Memoirs, Bloxy Blues, Broadway Bound, Laughter 23rd Floor, which you also starred in, among a ton of other things. Sondheim's funny thing happened on way to the forum. And, you know, also notably is the comic host Caesar in uh, Teatro Zanzani since 2001. And that you've been all over the world with from. San Francisco to Amsterdam to Seattle, but you still keep coming back to Groucho. Is it, is it all of the reasons that you've been talking about, or is there just something, you know, specific or special about Groucho? You keep coming back to him. Well, honestly, Greg, it's uh, it's fun. I mean, it's a joyful, it's a joyful enterprise for me. All of it is. I've never felt like I've worked a day in my life. I really haven't. And doing Groucho gives me a high. And doing doing the one man show that I've been that I've been involving since 1985, since I was a student at USC when I first performed it, and was discovered by Groucho Marx's son Arthur Marx, who had a different play about his dad that we took to New York and London. It never ceases to exhilarate me. You know, he exhilarated me when I watched him as a boy, and I always feel my job is to exhilarate an audience. And before I go on stage, I, I enter from the house, from the audience. I always say. Frank, share the joy. Share the joy that you felt. There's a purity to it. I mean, I really come to it as a, as a kid that loved it. You know, that was, I needed the escape. A lot of us, you know, real life is, can be, is not so, it's not as fun as, 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 as make-believe life. And um, I got to make-believe and I got to play, you know, you, you have, uh, with Groucho, it's, it, you're putting on armor. You can say, you get to be the guy that says what he, whatever he wants to say and do, and, and gets to do whatever he wants to do. That's really freeing. And, uh, and we're not allowed to do that in polite society unless we want to go to jail, you know, or, or, or worse, or be or punched. And luckily, I haven't been punched yet or jailed yet. But, um, you know, that's what, uh, you know, I, that's the great thing is you were saying, Matt, it's about this truth telling. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not really encouraged to, to tell the truth. We're uncomfortable with the truth. And Groucho's persona had, no, there was no qualms for Groucho in terms of his response. At least, uh, uh, on you know it, within his creation, his comic creation, but even in life, that spilled into his existence. He, it's much easier to do it in some ways and safer to, to do it as a character than to do it as a human. And and he had a, certainly his own struggles and paid prices for saying things he should you know that went too far. And but he's he uh, to answer your question, I go back to it because it's it's really joy joyful. It's something that I get better at. I think with every passing year. As I mature, I, I started doing this show when I was an evening with Groucho on stage when I was 22. I'm, I'm going to be 58 this week. 
I've been doing the show that long. That's a long time. And um, I've changed. And so as I mature and go through my ups and downs, I'm able to apply my experiences as a person, as a creative person to this role, to other roles, to directing, to writing. So yeah, there's something special uh, when you can take a feeling that you've gotten, you know, from watching Groucho or, or anything else and being able to kind of reproduce that and, and spread that out and just something special about that. Yeah. And I didn't, I thought I was the, as a kid, I thought I was the only one who knew he was special. I didn't know. I felt I was always trying to convert the masses. Certainly I was trying to convert my classmates when I was in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and all through my schooling. And then to realize later that there were millions and millions of people who loved him and his brothers was kind of a bit of a surprise to me. I thought it was my own private discovery. And so, <laughs> but to this day, gents, I feel like I'm, it's missionary work. I'll, I'll go, I mean, I've done two tours in Australia doing an evening with Groucho. I've done 3,000 performances all over the world. I've played Paducah, Altoona, Dubuque. <laughs> I, I love those because I played those all within a year and they all have an ooh sound. But I've also played, you know, San Francisco, New York, London. I mean, you know, small towns, big towns. And, uh, and often an audience won't know him at all. Maybe one, maybe none. So the show has to succeed whether they know who he is or not. And uh, it succeeds, I think, because I've done it for so long. And I, I think it's almost sheer will on my part. You know, it's really a delight when you see kids laughing at the same thing someone who's 94 is laughing at. And that happens. And it still, it still has a hip quality to it. It's not, some people might think, oh, it's old fashioned or passe. To me, it's still edgy. It's naughty. It's, it's totally wrong. It's inappropriate. And I don't like playing. I like playing to younger crowds or at least crowds that have a sense of his irreverence. Uh, that thrills me. And, and I saw that when I was in Seattle for three summers, at uh, ACT Theater. I, I did three weeks for three years consecutively, not that long ago. And what I was seeing more of, what, uh, I was seeing more young people, uh, people from the University of Washington, couples on dates coming to see the shows. I thought I've lived long enough to see this. I thought back when I was a kid in my 20s, by the time the 80s passed, it'd be over. There'd be no more interest, but it never stops. He's referred to all the time on the internet, in books and magazines television and film. Uh, he's very present, actually, in terms of someone from that era. I'd say time, I call him timeless. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a good word. And, and that's the, the irreverence and the wit and the wisdom is what uh, drew me to Groucho. Uh -huh. And I found myself watching a lot of his interviews during quarantine, uh, almost as a kind of a balm for the soul. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he just, he cuts through it all. Mm -hmm. And I, I especially appreciate the interviews in his later years. Uh, he has that grandfatherly quality. He reminds me of a, a close elderly friend that I spent a lot of time with and, you know, watching him on Cabot and Carson. And that's actually how I stumbled on your show, um, you know, watching those YouTube clips. And I found uh, an evening with Groucho clips and you know, wrote your info down right away. Uh, like we chatted about off air, told Greg, we got to get this guy. And then here I am shopping in, at, at half price books in Tacoma <laughs> and I bump into in their class classic film section, an autographed 
In silver Sharpie, nonetheless, oh, <laughs> a DVD copy of your show, Groucho, A Life in Review. And I said, this must be a sign from the heavens. This is Groucho speaking. We got we to gotta talk to Frank. Oh, The show, I, it was superb. Um, and I loved it. My wife loved it. My daughter, who's 13, loved it. Uh, it was, uh, you know, frequently heartfelt. It was hilarious. It was serious. And, you know, there was, a, there was plenty of opportunity to connect with one's emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, as part of the special features, you introduced Groucho's son. Right. And just to clarify, that show was written by Groucho Marx's son, as you're mentioning. Right. And that's the show that I did upon graduation from USC. He picked me to play his father. We started it out. It started out in a dinner theater in Kansas City. And then we moved (laughs) to New York. We played off Broadway for 250 performances. We got all these rave reviews and awards and that moved to London and it got nominated for Olivier Awards, which is the Tony Award. I mean, it was crazy. I was 23, 24 years old. And eventually it was filmed Many years later, this I'm from 1980, and we're talking from 1986, 87, and 1999, it was filmed, and it came out on PBS nationally in 2001. Right, came out as a DVD, and in that show, I play Groucho from age 15 to 85. So, just, just to give background to your listeners, so now you have this DVD. Yes, I have the DVD, and and of course, there's this this special introduction with with his son, and he alluded to. The way that you guys met, uh, he said that he was uh, he was sitting inside an establishment and he saw someone get out of a vehicle and walk in. And it was as if his father had returned to Earth. And he said, I wasn't sure if I was ready for that or not. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and it was you. And and I got to tell you, of you, you, you portray all the ages mm-hmm. uh, superbly. But again, having watched all these these YouTube clips recently, you I think you especially nailed the octogenarian Groucho, the cadence in his voice, the mm-hmm. delivery, even his posture. But mm-hmm. um, again, can you tell us about that first meeting with Arthur? Sure. It sounds like you gave him a little bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, he saw me at USC do the one the one man show that I that's the show I continue to do an evening with Groucho. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, that's now become, you know, even a I'm I'm better now than I was then. My because it's all that all focuses on young Groucho, and a third of it's interactive and improvised. And if you saw any of the clips, it's just, it's, it's just, it's more free form and flowing and, you know, I've evolved that, that other show was over 20 plus years ago. So mm-hmm. the current show is the one person show, but get to get back to your question. I did the one man show at USC. Arthur was in the audience. Groucho Marx's daughter, Miriam was in the audience on my campus at USC. Maury Riskind, who co-wrote Animal Crackers and Night at the Opera, he's in the audience. He's 89. So I'm a 20, it was my 22nd birthday this week. So this would have been 30, 36 years ago. And um, I do the show, people stand up, it's a big hit. And at the reception afterward, Arthur says, if I ever do a show about my father again, I'd like to use you. And uh, so, so an opportunity arose. Yeah. And that was in Kansas City Dinner Theater. So he said, Frank, we don't know if you can do the old man, but uh, you know, we need to see you read, we want you to read the scene for us us being Robert Fisher, his writing partner of decades. So I drive from my little town here in the, in the near Pasadena to Beverly Hills, you know, which is like <laughs> foreign territory to, you know, to a relatively modest kid at the time. And, and um, I, what I did was I got dressed up like old Groucho. I got a beret. I whitened, I put, I had a fake, I had a mustache at the time. I kind of whitened the mustache. I had thick glasses. I wore, uh, you know, a, 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 a jacket. And uh, I drove, you know, 45, 50 minutes to Beverly Hills. I parked my Datsun Dasher, you know, <laughs> you know, a Volkswagen Dasher is what it was, a Volkswagen Dasher. And I 
uh, and I get out of the car slowly. And from the moment I got out of the car and had a cigar, I just was going to be Groucho. And I shuffle up to Robert Fisher's home on Alpine. And I, and I knock at the door. And they open the door. And I go, I look at Arthur and I say, how are you, Big Feet? <laughs> that was that was Big Feet was was Groucho's nickname for Arthur because he used to clomp around on the you know in, in the second floor of their home in Beverly Hills and that was this beginning, and I read the scene and there was a great and that was my that's what they saw, and um, there was a great line in, in, in it and Robert Fisher said it kind of summed up Groucho and what happens to you when you get older, and one of the lines in Groucho Life in Review was, I was in Rome. Or Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, that's what starts. And, and, it, and, you know, it's all on that long beat. And the audience yeah. goes crazy. And, uh, you know, and, you know, there was a great line that, you know, and so Gabe Kaplan had tooled around with this show for a while prior, and it was done for HBO like in 1981. And uh, it tooled around, but it never made it to New York or London. And, and thankfully, I, I got that part, a no name. And um, and we kept working on the script and it evolved in, you know, to Groucho Life and Review, which just called Groucho at first. And we added, Arthur added a line. He called me once like 6.30 in the morning. Now I'm 22. I'm in Kansas City. 6.30 in the morning doesn't, is not an hour a 22-year-old is used to seeing. Right. <laughs> but, uh, Art, but, uh, but a senior citizen is. So Arthur would call, called me up. And I, you know, I remember I, I was out of, you know, I was dozing. So I get to the phone and I figured it's, maybe it's an emerging. It's Frank, Frank, I found a line. I got a connecting line between middle-aged Groucho and old Groucho. I said, well, yeah, what is it? He goes, my dad used to always say to me, uh, there's no such thing as an old joke if you've never heard it before. Yes. And that's, yes. and that was, what a great line. Yes. And that really was, yeah. and, it, and, and it was, you know, it was, it was a, a statement on Groucho's revival. Yep. And, and, and the, the, really the bit would go. And, and then I, then kids of our generation were referenced in that show. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the line was, uh, it's hard to, something like this, I'm paraphrasing. It's hard to believe that kids, Kids that weren't even that kids that weren't even a gleam in their grandparents' eyes, they're laughing at things we did over fifty years ago. Yeah, it just goes to show you one thing: there's no such thing as an old joke <laughs> if if you've never heard it before. And so and so and that and so it was great. And I became old Groucho mid-song prior to that, mm -hmm. singing "Show Me a Rose." It was kind of a clever theatrical convention. You know, it's, it's funny and walking in, it's funny that Art, that's Arthur did, did what he was taken aback by the visual, but I became friends with Groucho's daughter, Miriam, very, very good friends. Um, they were like family. They treated me like their son, both of them. And strange, you know, I love their father and they treated me like their son. And I went to Miriam's home uh, in San Clemente for the first time. She wanted to meet me after seeing me at USC. And I was in my regular everyday clothes and I got out of the car and she looked out of her kitchen window and she said, Frank, I have to tell you, when you got out of the car, I felt like my father had arrived. Mm. And it's like, and I think, wow. that, and I'm not sure what that means. I was, but I think that there is a need for them to be, to, to find connection. And the, and Groucho was a difficult, complicated man. Mm -hmm. And I was a young, uncomplicated boy at the time. And in a way, and this sounds crazy. I think I was uh, a healing agent for them. Mm -hmm. and, and it sounds nuts, but and they didn't speak to each other, Arthur and Miriam, siblings, but they would call me over a period of decades, almost, I mean, constantly, they wouldn't know it back to back. One would hang up, the next would call. Hmm. It was just, they, they were connected. It just, that's how life is sometimes. But I mean, I'm getting a bit out there with this, but that's, um, 
I mean, that's how intimately connected I was to that family. And, 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 you know, I, I miss them all the time, but, um, you know, Groucho, I owe a lot to him and to his family. And, um, I'm for, I, I'm like, I'm always indebted to them. And, and I know I've done a lot for Groucho's legacy because I won't let him die. I won't right. let him go, you know, and I refuse to, and others feel the same way. There are a lot of fans out there and, um, I'm happy that I'm in a position to kind of continue to perpetuate mm -hmm. Groucho. I, I, I saw Groucho when I was a boy, Matt and Greg, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling here a bit, but no, not at all. I met him when I was a kid and my dad took the day off of work. I was 13 years old. And I wanted to meet my hero. So we went down to the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles where Groucho was going to promote a book. Groucho was just short of his 86th birthday. And I've been watching Groucho on talk shows. Uh, and uh, he seemed okay, but he was slowed down. Groucho shows up three hours late to this event. But I'm there with a book for him to sign. And there he is looking even older than I saw on television, glassy-eyed. He looked like he was like on tranquilizers. He looked like he was drugged. Mm. He could barely move. He had this dead look in his eyes and shuffling. And he comes into the, into the building, into the lobby of the, this hotel, the Ambassador Hotel. Everyone is shooed away. But I stick to Groucho like a duckling. I'm supposed to be there in my mind. And he's there with Aaron Fleming, his constant companion, and Hector Arce, who is his biographer. And they're all walking toward the podium where he's going to speak. And I'm walking right behind him. I can smell the old spice off of this guy, but you know, but everyone, no one else is there. I'm as, as if I'm supposed to, and I felt I was supposed to be there. Yeah. He gets to the podium. I sit at the master's feet and people start asking questions, which seems like it's going to be a night. You know, how is he going to do this? How is he going to respond to questions? Something clicked, of course, being the old vaudeville and the old pro that he was, you know, as soon as the lights go on or there's a mic in front of you, something, yeah. and I know what it's like because I'm the same way now. Something just clicks. And uh, he answered, I asked him the first question, which was, uh, I asked, you know, when's the book coming out? And he said something like, tell him. And I asked a question that I thought would get him upset and get him riled up. I said, um, in my 13-year-old brain, this was going to be the, um, the impetus for his, you know, wonderful, brazen evil I said, what do you think? I said, what do you think of Nixon? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he went, he looked at me and said, I hate Nixon. <laughs> Nixon. Nixon ought to be in jail. And of course, the audience of a thousand 20-something-year-olds basically erupted. You know, yeah. this is 1976. <laughs> oh, yeah. Vietnam, just post-Vietnam. And so, and but the best responses he had were um, someone asked him, Groucho, what do you dream about? And he looked at this woman and said, not you. <laughs> and everyone went crazy. And someone else asked, Groucho, are you making any new Marx Brothers movies? And he looked at the person and said, no, I'm answering stupid questions. <laughs> and 10 years, and everyone went nuts, of course. 10 years from that week, I opened, I was 13. I was opening in New York playing octogenarian Groucho. 10 years from that week, man, wow. 13, then 23, I was in New York. And so it's been a very, uh, very much a spiritual connection to him. And, and he is, uh, you know, because of him, I'm able to direct and do other roles and, and have a life in the theater, which is rare to work consistently. Like I have certainly not much in the last year, year and a half, but because of him, I've had a lot, you know, I have built up, you know, uh, built a bit of a career, which I'm grateful for. Well, Frank, you were mentioning, I mean, just then about 
different age ranges that you've played in Groucho's life. Uh, Matt alluded to it before uh, in the different shows you've done. Do you have a favorite age, you know, octogenarian Groucho, younger Groucho? I loved playing old Groucho, particularly when I was 23, 24 years old. And I think that's why it was lauded because no one could believe a 23-year-old Italian-American from the suburbs could play an 85-year-old Jewish New York dying comedian. I mean, it was just, it was seen, it was, I think it was probably mind boggling to, to, to a lot of people. And, and, but I, I loved him and so much, and I, I observed him. I saw him live and in person and I had great empathy for him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was rooting for him. Like so many of my young peers, uh, we didn't want to see him get old. We didn't want him to die. He was a grandfather figure to me, as, as you say, Matt, to, he was to you. And he was to a lot of, a lot of my friends. We saw him that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when he passed away, I remember uh, everyone kept saying, did you hear Groucho died? Did you hear Groucho died? I was 14. And I said, yeah, I heard he died. I heard he died. And then I went to bed that night, put the pillow over my head, and I just, I just lost it. I cried. And then years later, as an adult, I found out this was not an uncommon thing for all my peers. I knew an, a, an opera singer who was 10 when he died. He goes, oh, yeah, I died. I cried when Groucho died. I have spoken to dozens of people my age, a little younger, a little older, who were just devastated. Yeah. And it's like, wow, all that for a, a clown, for a great clown. I mean, that's the kind of impact. He, there's something he did that is so profound, that, that is so piercing, that cut through so deep to us that we could barely explain it. But we're still talking about it. We're not ancient. We weren't there when he was performing, but we love him. And there's something he did that that released us, that made us feel free, that, f- that made us feel like there are other ways of seeing life. And when you, are, when you are a kid and you're trying to figure it out, when you see a wild performer, a comedian, you, you laugh, which means you open up, you're free. You see there are other ways to look at existence. That doesn't have to be that one road that the, that the nuns teach you or your parents or whatever authority figure is. Uh, you know, who, who was ever, you know, running the, calling the shots. So there's thing about Groucho, there's a child, there's an adolescent quality to the Marx Brothers, there's a childlike quality to the Marx Brothers. And I think young people uh, re- still relate to them. Well, and like you mentioned earlier, what's great about your career is that you're keeping him alive. Groucho's gone, but he's not gone. And part of that is due to your talent for mimicry. And what I'd really like to know is what was the process like learning his mannerisms, the speech, um, the inflection, and even the movements, uh, the dancing, when you portray him, especially through so many time periods? Well, and back when I was studying, there was less, there were a lot less resources. There was no internet, of course. And, and in fact, there was barely VHS, I don't think. I mean, there was not a lot. You, you know, a lot of the time we would, you know, a lot of us were real to real taping yeah. them off of the TV set. I had audio cassettes of Groucho's voice. And the first time I ever did the show was in it, you know, before I even did it on my college campus, I, I broke it in. I was trying, I tried it out, so to speak, at my church hall where, where my family, you know, were parishioners in Sierra Madre, St. Rita's. And I had the support of the, that community. Not that I was particularly religious, but I was particularly a, a Marxist is what I was, so to speak. But uh, <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm stealing that one. More of a Marxist than a Catholic of, of, of the Groucho kind. You know, here I was under the altar in the church hall, and it seemed really incongruous and irreverent and wrong. But there were, there were the church, you know, the priests that were happy to let me have the space, and I'd be there in the middle of the night to answer your question. 
listening to his voice over and over and over again and speaking along with it. And I practiced that corkscrew dance in front of a mirror, which I'm happy I can still do after all these years. And, <laughs> you know, it just really was repetition and reading whatever you could read. Sure. Back then, you know, it was microfiche. And literally, when you wanted a magazine from the 30s, they gave you the magazines from the 30s. You know, they go back and get, you know, there's the periodical guides. That's how I would. And I would go to my local library and read everything I could about him. Now, so much has come out since then. And I still read about him. You know, his letters uh, are really revealing. Uh, they're great resources to his daughter, to his friends. You get another side of him as a human. Right. But to answer your question, it was repetition. And then, you know, it, then it becomes trial by fire. I didn't know how it was going to go, Matt or Greg. I just kind of went, I threw myself out on stage. Uh, and, you know, I, I rehearsed a lot. I was prepared. You know, I had that moment of like, what if I forget everything? I mean, that's a, what a wild concept. I am doing a, the whole concept of a solo show, a one-man show to be 20, you know, one years old. And to do that, a 90-minute show is, that's an insane thought when I think about that kind of, challenge i created for myself but to answer your question it was it was repetition everything is repetition 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 and and as you said i had a certain instinct for already and i had ingested his rhythms and his person you know absorbed his personality as i had with jack benny and phil silvers and milton burrow and bob hope and you know just that you loved him and, and you know, i was able to i used to imitate all those guys for classmates and i wasn't a class clown but i would you know once in a while i would throw a little little bomb out there, a little dart out there, you know, from the back of <laughs> my classroom. But yeah, so it was a process. And, you know, I still have to, I still reference the source material because, you know, it also depends, you know, the kind of venue you play. Sure. You know, sometimes, you know, if you're not mic'd, you got to play. It, it, my voice changes from, has to change from venue to venue. Sometimes I hit a softer R. Sometimes I'll hit the R a little harder. If it's an older crowd, you know, it, it, it's, you have to, you have to make adjustments. I'm not Groucho. I'll never be Groucho. My job is to filter him, you know, through my, you know, skill, uh, my experience. And so my job is to give an essence of Groucho to give, you know, and try to be as close as possible while serving his spirit and his style. And what I do in the, what, what I do now is this one man in the evening with Groucho show, which is a best of songs, storytelling. Uh, I have a piano player, uh, I've been, that's the show that I did at USC. I continue to do, and I just filmed it a few years ago. And it's finally just last week. I found out that PBS is going to pick up that show. Oh, so in a year from now, that's a show that, uh, that I have a great deal. Thank you. A great deal of pride. in. it was edited by the director, Dre Weber. And we continue to, to evolve it and switch out material. But again, a third of the show is improvised. I mean, I'm in the house and I don't, there are not a lot of shows like that. And I, I love the, uh, that, that unknown, you know, component of the show, which is, you know, ad living. Do you think uh, doing a one man show is cause you, if you started this in your early twenties, is it easier? Do you think when you start younger than, because maybe there's a, I don't want to say necessarily a, a, a brashness, but maybe a, uh, I don't know, a little more courage you have when you're swagger. younger to, to <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, maybe, maybe, but. It seems like it would, it would be maybe easier to start a one-man show kind of thing than when you're older. I think you're right because life can wear you down, and uh, it and and I think we get more, we can be more fearful because of uh, we have hindsight. We know how hard you know. I know how hard it is to be in the live theater industry. 
it's not easy. It's uh, it's it's work, and a lot of it um, is some luck and preparation. And but to answer your question, I I think I was you know pretty fearless, and I was driven to do it. I felt I was supposed to do that show, and I and play this character, and I felt I was up against uh, a deadline. I felt that I had a certain amount of time, and it turned out I was right. All everything aligned so that I was able to get seen by Arthur Marks, and the show happened to exist, and it was happened to you know then it was able to go to New York and London. I mean, it should, you know, it should never have happened, but I felt, I felt, I, I can't explain. I mean, I was a kid when I was nine reading in my local library at Sarah Madre, Son of Groucho, which was written by Arthur Marx, written about his, obviously his father. It's my favorite book. Little did I know that the guy that wrote that book that I loved was going to cast me to play my hero, his dad, but also he was going to bequeath me the copyright to that book wow. when he passed away. So I own the copyright to Son of Groucho. So this went from my, my favorite biography. I own the copyright that I read as a nine-year-old. Wow. Hmm. It's insane. But, but your question about being young and doing that, I think it was important in a way. I think of Hal Holbrook, who famously portrayed Mark Twain for 62 years, Mark Twain Tonight. He started out in his 20s. It takes a lot of chutzpah. And, in, you know, he would say in, in, insanity. He's, he would say I, he was a friend of mine. He passed away in January. He was 95 almost 96. And I got to be friends with him. He's the grandfather of the solo historic yeah. solo show. And one of the finest character actors that the country produced, you know, he's an Academy Award nominee and you know, won Emmys and Tonys and he's a beast, but he would say, he would, he would said of both of us, it takes a certain amount of insanity and desperation, not that we're desperate, but that you desperately need to do it. Yeah. You know, you need, he needed to tell Twain's story. He needed to show people you know, Twain was like, you know, it was the pomposity killer. He's the one that talked about holding up a mirror to our lives. He was the tr ultimate truth teller. He showed us what, you know, what was going on in society. And, and Hal Holbrook believed in that and, and aligned himself with that point of view. And, you know, he was, you know, you know, he called Congress, he called Congress on their stuff and, and you name it, society in general. You could, you know, you can do a whole thing on Hal. I mean, Hal's like one of the most amazing performers. My point being, it does take kind of an insanity and a mad desperation, but also both of us were in our twenties when we started and, it, and you need the, you know, it has to do with stamina and I've still the same stamina. I feel I, I'm, I've been blessed with great, great stamina endurance. And, but those shows are relentless. It's a physical show. I jump over couches. I jump off the stage. My knees have taken a beating. I've done pratfalls. My feet have smashed again. You know, it's just what you do. I never missed a show in, I don't know, 6,000 performances, never been late for a show. It's just, I love being part of the tradition as did Mr. Holbrook. And, and uh, I feel connected to something because Groucho brought me into that world. I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm an outsider because I'm not like a huge, I never became, I'm not a huge, I'm not a name. Uh, I'm a journeyman performer, sort of a journey person. You know, I, I, I'm someone who works and I'm right there in the middle. And I hope I, I'm, I'd be happy to just to stay in the middle and keep working <laughs> forever. I've had little spikes of glory, you know, and, and not just with Groucho, with some other things in my life, but really it's just, it's just, you want to play. I want to play. I want, I'm into the long game. I want to keep doing it until I have a lot of friends who've had to quit uh, due to just bad breaks, not being able to make a living. I've had friends who've gotten sick, friends have passed away and I just want to keep going. And, and, you know, I was lucky. I started young and a lot of people I worked with were seven years older than me, 10 years older than me, 20, 30, 40. And I learned from all these great, a lot of great character actors, mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of them are older or are going and, and some aren't, but you know, I, I was, I feel fortunate that I was surrounded by a lot of 
talented people from the New York stage and, and the regional theater scene. And I'm inspired by them. And so that keeps me going. I mean, I really do hope to do this for another you know, 30 years, as long as I still like doing it and stay healthy. Well, one of the testaments of how well you do channeling Groucho, uh, Maury Riskind had said that you were the, quote, only actor aside from Groucho who delivered my lines as they were intended, which is a fantastic compliment. Well, yeah, and that's a guy who wrote for the Marx Brothers and was and uh, Groucho was his best man at his wedding. Maury Riskin won a Pulitzer Prize for The I Sing, which was written with the Gershwins. That was an honor. I met him. He, he was at opening night at USC. And at, at the reception, he goes, Frank, I hear you're all of 22. Isn't it time you retired? <laughs> I mean, still witty, you know, and he, you know, he passed away. You know, it was his last public appearance. He died four months later and it was an honor to meet him. Uh, but yeah, Riskin, these are my heroes. You know, these great, uh, you know, wits like George S. Kaufman, S.J. Perlman and Arthur Sheikman, Nat Perrin, Almar and Ruby. Then there's all these great people can look them up. They're, they were remarkable, uh, humorous and had great, they have great stories themselves in terms of their own personal career histories. But yeah, that was flattering. One of our uh, upcoming guests, Robert Bader, huh. author of the, uh, he's going to be on our show in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, he wrote the book, Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, which was praised by Dick Cavett. And Robert has a new PBS special mm-hmm. planned about Cavett with his relationship with Groucho and his brothers. You've mentioned some of Groucho's contemporaries that you've met. Are there any others that stand out? And, and what did you learn about Groucho from meeting some of these people that that worked with him? Well, the ones, uh, you know, the ones that uh, like Robert Dwan directed You Bet Your Life. He loved Groucho. I had this photo. I invited him to my my home and in, 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 uh, lived in Hollywood uh, many years ago. And I threw a 70th birthday party for Miriam, Groucho's daughter. And uh, she worked on You Bet Your Life. And so I invited George Fenneman, who couldn't come, the announcer. And here he is, the one, the only Groucho. He, he had emphysema and he was dying, so he, he couldn't make it. But Robert Dwan could. He was, was an integral part of that staff. And I had a photo of Groucho in my bedroom. And it's Groucho, and it's a one-of-a-kind photo. It's Groucho in his NBC dressing room without his hairpiece. The tie's not tied yet. And he's looking at the camera, you know, just, just, you know, and, but he's in his element. And Robert Dwan looks at the photo and starts to get teary-eyed. And he looks and he goes, that image is the image I looked at day after day for 14 years. That exact, that was him looking at, at, at his director. That was Groucho looking at Dwan. Wow. And so that was, but, um, you know, mostly um, the most, the most I've learned about Groucho has come from his kids. And you see, you know, it was not easy being the son and daughter of someone like that uh, for many reasons. But I learned about his complexity as a human. I saw really what a human he was, you know, that he, you know, not many people know what made him tick. The kids certainly did. And you can see the impact he had on him for better and worse, as we all have with our parents and our loved ones who raise us. Uh, but um, I would try to think who else that I, I, you know, I interviewed a lot of people that knew, you know, Bill Marx talks about, he was a, you know, Groucho was a difficult man. You know, he was not a piece of cake. There's a reason he was named Groucho. <laughs> right. He was, he was very serious. His father, Arthur said he could be very morose at times. Um, you know what I learned about him? He was a very dedicated friend. He kept friendships for decades. He promoted young talent. Not a lot of successful people of that, uh, of that level do that. 
He did it with Steve Allen. He did it with, um, with Jack Lemmon. He did it with Dick Cavett. He, helped, he, he catapulted some, he really elevated a lot of careers, Woody Allen. And that is a, that's a hell of a quality. Yeah. And what I, I, I you know, I, I, I guess I, I didn't know a lot of people that were, there weren't many alive uh, people alive when, uh, when I was, you know, doing the show, that new Groucho, there was very, very few. But I learned a lot from, I saw what I really learned is that, you know, Groucho loved what he did and he loved making people laugh and he loved, uh, and he'd never stopped. He had a, he had a joy. He loved to sing. He loved to perform. I loved to sing. I loved to perform. And I got that from a lot of it from him. He had this incredible uh, work ethic. You know, he was relentless. And, and uh, his, what I, his ability, the wordplay, again, as I say, the fact that he loved words and wordplay is something that I enjoy a great deal. Our guest is award-winning actor, director, and producer, and the modern-day embodiment of the one and only Groucho Marx, Frank Ferrante. When we come back, we'll chat more with Frank about the influence Groucho has had on popular culture and what actors and artists still have to learn from him in 2021. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned to Heilman and Haver. And welcome back to the 25th episode of Heilman and Haver. Today is Friday, April 23rd. And on this day in 1931, pre-code gangster film, The Public Enemy, a film about an Irish-American street punk trying to make it big in the world of organized crime premiered, starring James Cagney and Gene Harlow. Despite an Oscar nomination for Best Original Story and its accurate depictions of Prohibition-era Chicago's bootlegging and gang violence, the film may be best remembered for its grapefruit scene, where an irritated Cagney smashes a grapefruit into actress Mae Clark's face at breakfast. Several versions exist of the origin of the notorious grapefruit scene, but there is one on which both Cagney and Clark agree. Uh, The scene they explained was actually staged as a practical joke at the expense of the film crew just to see their stunned reactions. There was never any intention of ever using the shot in the completed film, but director William A. Wellman uh, eventually decided to keep the shot and use it in the film's final release print. Thanks to OnThisDay.com and the Internet Movie Database at IMDB.com for our trivia. I actually just watched The Public Enemy last night on TCM as part of Pre-Code April. We've been celebrating along with our friend and guest film critic Matthew Turner, who launched the viewing event this year. There's still a week to go, so visit Matthew's Twitter page at, at filmfan1971 for film recommendations, then join the conversation like I have with your own list of pre-code film reviews. Just remember to use hashtag pre-code April when you post. And nothing goes better with great movies than great food and the perfect cocktail. And there may be no more timeless and iconic cocktail than the James Bond martini. The official Bond martini, known as the Vesper martini, after Vesper Lind, the original Bond girl and the only woman 007 ever truly loved, the cocktail is featured in Ian Fleming's very first Bond novel, Casino Royale. And on this week's episode of In the Mix, we're back at the Bay Street Bistro in Port Orchard, Washington, to celebrate Casino Royale with our version of the Vesper martini, plenty of Bond trivia, and a preview of the Bistro's special Sunday supper menu dedicated to the 2006 film version of Casino Royale which debuted Daniel Craig as 007 and starred Mads Mikkelsen, Judy Dench, and lovely Eva Green as Vesper Lind. The Bistro Sunday Suppers are usually a sold-out affair, so call now and make a reservation, 360-602-0310, and follow Bay Street Bistro for updates on all their Sunday Supper events on their Facebook page at at Bay Street Bistro, and of course on the web at baystreetbistro.com. 
One more thing that pairs perfectly with fine food and a stiff drink is, of course, a fine cigar. And our guest is a man who's chomped on his share in his 35 years, playing a man who made the cigar an indelible part of his image and onstage persona, Groucho Marx. Groucho was born in the late 1800s. His most popular works are some of them 80 or more years old at this point. Mm-hmm. What, and, and, like you, you mentioned earlier, uh, one of my favorite lines from Groucho Life and Review is, there's no such thing as an old joke if you've never heard it before. So what can young actors and comedians and writers and artists in general learn from Groucho in 2021? I think specificity. There's some, He's so specific. His look is specific it's like one of a kind the mustache the eyebrows the glasses the cigar uh, the visual is distinct uh the point of view is clear we know what he's thinking we know when he's having a naughty thought we know when he wants to be mischievous we uh, you know his sound is distinct there i think i think what could be taken from him is is the importance of being specific in your creations and also Preparation. This is, a guy, this is a guy that spent 25 years on the road playing every crummy town there was before they made it to Broadway. Bef- I mean, before and before they made it to films, I should say. They were in their they were in their 40s when they made their first film. So I don't think enough could be said about rehearsal and preparation. That you can take from Groucho, the Marx Brothers, the Vaudevillians, Broadway stars, even people today. But Groucho epitomized that kind of hard work. And, and there's a never say die quality to him as a, as a performer and as a person never quit even during the lowest of moments sometimes he never thought he'd work again through divorce through ups and downs financially health his humor carried him through the day his and um i think all of us can really take a look at his you know his embracing of of humor and the, and the comic form that gets us through me being able to laugh and to perpetuate anything to do with comedy uh, extends my, the quality of my life and the quality of my life. Humor and music are two of the most important things to me. That's what gets me out of a funk. So you can look to Groucho for that. I mean, there's a lot you can look to Groucho for. He's not just a buffoon. He's someone that was an intellect. So he actually, you, as someone who performs, you have to observe. You have to be aware of human nature, people. He was an observer like most actors are. I think that's what performers, that, that's comedians are, are, are observers. They observe all that goes around them, all the ridiculous behavior that goes on around them, the, idiot, the idiocy, and comment on it and, the, and tell the truth about it. So I think all artists can, can see that in Groucho. And there's a real purity. And, you know, and I think what you notice about Groucho, it seems to come from a very organic place, a very, you know, from his core. He's not faking it. So there's an authenticity to Groucho. So I think... Performers, artists, anyone can see that in Groucho. You know, you, you know, go for what's authentic. His persona is an extension of his soul. His, in my opinion. So Groucho, as we've we've talked about, is well known for his wit and put downs, and often directed at at women. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's very few comedians I know that can get away with the way he delivered and the kind of material he mm-hmm. delivered. I think Don Rickles may have been another one. Right. Um, kind of these insult comics, I guess. But right. you addressed this in a really graceful way in, in Groucho Life and Review, talking about how the maybe the put-downs directed toward women might have been a defense mechanism or a, a way of you know showing love. But he was also a pro at sneaking and suggestive humor when it was least right. expected as well, right. as in You Bet Your Life. But mm-hmm. how, so how does the Groucho style of humor play these days in the era of Me Too and uh-huh. some of these other um, you know, sensitive uh, 
aspects of, of, of what people right. want to hear or expect to hear. Right. And, and I've been performing this character during this whole movement, and, and I'm very aware of where this lands or could land if not handled properly. The thing about Groucho Marx is that he made fun of everyone, men, women, dogs, cats, every bit of society, anyone in a th- position of authority, doctors, lawyers, politicians. Um, and I'll get to your question. And, he, you know, this is a guy who did say, I can see you right now in the kitchen bending over a hot stove, but I can't see the stove. Now, you can't, <laughs> now that line, and, I, and that's, you know, someone would say that's body shaming today. And in fact, the last time I did it and for a, a long run, the artistic director pointed that I said, well, it'd be body, sh- you know, you have a point. So we need to put context. Mm-hmm. It needs context. People don't know who Groucho is as much. They don't know who Margaret Dumont is, his favorite famous foil right. who embodied uh, the, the rich, the wealthy, the, you know, the, the, the well-fed, uh, the, the well-groomed. And she was power. She was authority. She's the establishment. She's a grand dame. She is that, you know, there's the have that the have and have not. She's the haves. She is a buffoon character. She's a stock character. He's making fun. She embodies the wealthy. So he's punching away at her. Now, if you don't know this, if you don't know the history of these characters, you might take that as, you know, as some kind of shaming of some kind that may not be fitting of today. But what we did was we, I resolved that by saying, by making sure it was clear that the audience knew that Margaret Dumont was an actress who played, you know, a character. And he was a, obviously a character who was the little guy, mm-hmm. you know, looking, you know, outside the window, looking in. And, you know, the, he was the, he is a home. They're homeless characters. They're they're That's what they are trying to invade society. So what I did, what I've done in recent years also is I've used visuals so people can see that Mark, what Margaret Dumont looks like, see her in her tiara, in her jewelry, with her, you know, with her, you know, her upright bosom and her, you know, and all her glory and <laughs> pomposity. You know, and her, yeah. And, and all her haughty yeah. glory. And so I, so I do, and I, and you know, there's so much as the director is a woman, by the way, of my show, Drea Weber. And she's also the person that's edited this piece for PBS. And um, so she's edited it. She, she directed the film and the, and she is a very much a strong female. And so we go through every syllable of this show with, with the current uh, climate in mind. And there's, luckily, there's so much to Groucho's persona that it doesn't have to just, listen, he's, he is a flirt. And I have him flirting with women and teasing men. And that is, you know, it just, it really becomes a balancing act and a, and a, and a tight rope act, you know, in terms of pulling this stuff off. I, I am sensitive to it. I have a daughter. I have a mother I'm close to. I have a partner as a female, you know, so that's, that's so I, it, it's a great question. But uh, there are things that that are done, that I can do that I do to to make it palatable and still potent and searing in its own way, and and, and it works and it works for today because still he's a, he's a fascinating, you know he's still a rabble rouser he's still a, you know there's anti-establishment behavior is never going to go away, and wisecracking is not going to go away, you know calling someone out on their on their pomposity is never going to go away. And that's what Groucho did so craftily and brilliantly and with such musicality in his voice and delivery. So, but it's a great question because it's something that I care about because I never want to hurt. I really don't want to ever hurt anyone uh, when I play these characters. I do another character that's this kind of Latin lover character in the Cirque world, the Caesar, 
Well, and to my, you know, fortunately, my character is kind of this polysexual character. The, the Caesar, he loves men, women, again, dogs, cats. <laughs> Everyone's free game for his love and, and party-like, you know, approach to life. So I've been able to get away with a lot of that uh, more than per, if I was just a traditional Latin lover, who, like, like what Pepe Le Pew is going through. You're not going to see Groucho canceled. You're not going to see what I do canceled. Uh, it, it's in the right hands and sticking around. He used the terms potent and powerful. And uh, there's one prop that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the ever-present stogie. Mm-hmm. And in uh, in the special features, again, of Groucho Life and Review, you introduced Arthur Marks, uh-huh. his son, and he gave you one of his father's humidors. So before we let you go, we've got to know what brand of cigars Groucho enjoyed most. And of course, what does... Frank Ferrante most enjoy. <laughs> well, Groucho loved Dunhills, Cuban Dunhills, you know, but you know, when, when you could get them uh, right. and I've, you know, I've, and I've purchased a lot of Groucho stuff. I've been gifted stuff. I have multiple humidor. I've got his cigar cutter. I'll smoke whatever anyone will give me basically. doesn't even have to be a cigar, but uh, no, but uh, no, I like a quality cigar. Maybe once a month I'll smoke in my little backyard and, but uh, I've got kids who aren't crazy about the whole concept. So um, I keep it down to a minimum. But to me, if I smoke a cigar, I feel like I'm on a vacation. You know, it's like a, right. it's a great indulgent. You have a, have a little adult beverage and a cigar, and I'm, I'm very happy. In fact, I may light up right after we do this uh, interview in, in both of your honors. Well, that'd be great. And I hope you can uh, share a cigar and adult beverage together uh, real soon. And, uh, you have a birthday this week, so there's something to celebrate over a cigar, right? Yes. Thank you for noting that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you, sir. Well, hopefully we can not only see your show in person really soon, but uh, hopefully we connect and, and uh, again, share one of those cigars. This has been uh, just so much fun to talk about Groucho, talk about your career, and uh, hope we can get you back on. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'd love to share other kind of things that are going on in, in my creative life with you, but it's always fun to to celebrate Groucho Marx. And I'm glad you both admire him as I do. And there's only one thing I can say, hello, I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came. But just the same. I must be going. La la. Someone had to do it. <laughs> Bravo. Well, thank you, Frank. This has been great. Uh, we appreciate your time and happy birthday. And, thank you. I uh, can't think of a better guest to uh, celebrate our 25th episode with. So this, is, uh, this has been a, a ton of fun and we appreciate it. Thank you for the honor, both of you gentlemen. Thank you for including me and continued success. Well, many thanks to our guest, Frank Ferrante, for making our 25th episode such a special one. You can follow Frank and his tour as Groucho on Facebook at at an evening with Groucho and on the show's website, eveningwithgroucho.com. And for more info on Groucho and his incredible career, including official archive material, video, music, and radio clips, and official Groucho Marx merchandise, check out Frank's other website, GroucholMarks.com. And be sure to join us next week, Friday, April 30th, when we'll be joined by another Marx Brothers expert, Robert Bader, author of Four of the Three Musketeers, The Marx Brothers on Stage, and editor of Groucho Marx and Other Short Stories and Tall Tales. Robert is also the curator of several important entertainment archives, including those of the estates of the Marx Brothers, Bing Crosby, and Danny Kaye. He also manages the archive of The Dick Cavett Show and serves on the board of directors for the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Marx Brothers Incorporated, and the Film Preservation Society. Needless to say, we've got lots to talk to him about, so don't miss it. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. 
We'd love to hear from you. So please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until we're treading the boards together again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.